Welcome to Nell and Matt's Obsolete Movies, the podcast where we revisit films from our 20 plus years of collecting movies on obsolete formats. You can also think of it as, or this podcast as being about films from the VHS era, though not necessarily on VHS. And our film for this episode is A Shot in the Dark from 1964, and we watched it on Laserdisc. Getting it from John, one of the co-owners of Pleasant Dreams Records, it was given to me actually for free. I bought a speaker cabinet <laughs> off of John. And um, when you are a person who collects obsolete more formats, sometimes people will just give you media on yes. obsolete formats. <clears throat> Even people who sell you the media on obsolete formats will just kind of say, hey, and here's a box of laser discs. Yeah. That I don't think are sellable in my store. Enjoy. And, um... That's how yeah. we got it. Yep. That's how we got it. And, uh... Yeah. Uh, our, and this Laserdisc is a little finicky. So it does sometimes... Our Laserdisc player, player is finicky. Finicky, sorry. Um, yes. Yes. This Laserdisc actually worked fine. Yes. The laser... Unlike the episode... Well, unlike the episode we tried to do on Greece. Yeah. Which led us to this. So... Shot in the Dark is uh, is a Pink Panther film starring Peter Sellers as, of course, Inspector Clouseau, the bumbling yet strangely brilliant French detective. Yeah. And uh, there is a murder, and he tries to solve it, and because he's so bad at everything, a bunch more people get killed, but then all the murderers get killed, and... <laughs> falls in love with the initial first suspect yes of the murder and wackiness and hilarity sort of ensues that's yes. that's a shot in the dark and it's also the second in the series of the pink, oh it's pink only pink. the second one okay yes. yeah um this film also i would say is a testament to uh the role of unsupervised time with HBO had, I think, in both <laughs> of our lives. I remembered a few scenes in this film. I remember as a child when they were on HBO thinking that Pink Panther movies were cool. I think because they... The world of sophisticated adults seemed so less threatening in these films because everybody was kind of stupid yeah. and inept. Well, and so the world of manners and nightclubs and going out and being formal and be having authority really well, even if I didn't get most of the jokes and couldn't follow the plot, I remember as a very young child, I'm talking four, five, six years old, loving this movie and pink, other Pink Panther movies. Well, I think as kids, it's all it's all about his like pratfalls, right? And mm -hmm. being bumbling and what kid doesn't love to see those type of things. I mean, this is pre-Fail Army and, you know, um, that home video series where you can... America's Funniest Home videos. videos. This is like, you know, you Pre-Jackass. Pre-Jackass. So you weren't able to jump on a computer and see somebody take a spill or, or a fall. Yes, um, and like things like Buster Keaton and The Three yeah. Stooges. That was too old. I mean, you found that actually later in life. Yeah. What HBO was presenting to me as a four-year-old. Yes. Was and, you Peter know, like, Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. The scenes of Cato attacking him. 
um, his servant, unfortunately, his servant, Kato, His very Asian stereotype servant, Kato, attacking him. uh, But as a kid, you're like, oh, that's so funny. He surprised him in the shower. (laughs) Like, you know, that seems really funny um, at that time. Yes. I don't know if I find it as funny as an adult, though. (laughs) Yes, I think that's, well, all right, let's just do it. Revisiting the movie in the 2020s, which is the real point, I think, of this podcast. Yes. Uh, I think the first thing being, though we do have to talk about the, the ethnic stereotypes in the film, what does it mean for a comedy to be a parody of a basically dead genre? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is like... Agatha, it's uh, Agatha Christie, um, so they're taking on Agatha Christie kind of things. Yes, um, Clouseau, Clouseau is the the dark side of Pierrot or something, you know. Right. Um, it's also the opening sequence of this film is straight out of Rear Window. Yeah. Is an homage to Rear Window. But Hitchcock ain't making rear window in the 2020s anymore and it's right. not necessarily those types of films that um i dare say there are other cultural references or illusions jokes of illusions throughout this film that we just don't get because we i mean we've seen rear window yeah and i was like oh it's opening sequence of rear window i see what they did there and, you know, for me, like, the ending is straight up an Agatha Christie ending, right? Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so you're right. So these are kind of not in our conscious as much anymore. No, I mean, I guess for people who watch PBS. Yeah. On Sunday nights or something. And I think, not that, like, murder mysteries aren't still a thing. A thing, but... But it's like a, the pacing di- is different. It's very different. Is different. It's CGI. It's, it's not a heroic genius. Right. Seeing what no one else does. I mean... Which the Clouseau character absolutely plays off of. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't watch Knives Out, but I guess probably Knives Out would be the most current kind of uh, type of film that we're, we're referencing where it is um, a person coming to... Inve- an, an investigator uh, investigating a murder. But, you know, this is very much like Agatha Christie. And in some ways, like, the pacing is almost like an Agatha Christie. Where, for Agatha Christie, it is about the slow burn and gathering the clues and, you know, like... Sniffing out the red herring. Listening for, you know, one false statement or something like that. Which takes time. And so... But it's not necessarily very intriguing um, in many ways with that time. And so also for this, it also feels like it's the setup of the pratfall. Yes. And so kind of like the, the time between the pratfall isn't always interesting or fun. Or the joke. The times between the jokes. Yes. And also, I mean, the, the, the trope of the bumbling detective. Because, mm-hmm. you know, TV had Columbo. Yeah. And... You know, Thomas Pinchon, actually, from the 60s, had, you know, characters. Even the dude from The Big Lebowski, it's like, that's almost sort of a meta. Yeah. You know, bumbling detective who just happens to figure it all out, even though he's quite bad at life. Well, even Inspector Clouseau, uh, not Inspector, Inspector Gadget, right? Inspector Gadget is definitely an homage to Peter Sellers. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, like, you know, Gen Xers growing up, um, you know, we we watched Inspector... (laughs) We watched Inspector Gadget, which 
being like a 30 minute cartoon works much better than a two hour movie with you know a, 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 a guy who has a magic suit and could do anything and technology yeah. and it's really penny and yeah the dog who kind of figures everything out right. for him and he just kind of waltzes through yeah but you know his hat turns into a helicopter when he needs it in the worst worst possible way so that's in that way it's you know the tool belt from batman meets inspector clue show was that show yeah so i think there was you're right i think that was priming the pump already sort of a visual vocabulary when yeah inspector gadget came along and i think also too like the um you know so you would have had at the time martin and lewis right yeah, which kind of like well later. So this is sixty four. This is sixty four. So oh. laughing had not happened yet. Not Martin. Uh, uh, D Martin and Jerry. D Lewis. Martin and Jerry's. Oh, I was thinking Rowan and Martin. I was yeah. thinking, ah. <laughs> but you know what? Again, that was sixties comedy. That was sixties comedy. That was so. that very had, had very much had some of the same yeah. flavor. There was a physicality, but also laughing at authority. Yeah. Because one of the things I think that's interesting for me about Inspector Clouseau is that, like, the commander is actually more bumbling and more inept. Yeah. And more, like, the higher up you go on the chain of command, the more strange and inept people become. Yes. And they're <laughs> just because you have more power doesn't mean you're better at Yes. The commander, you know. Uh, accidentally chops his thumb off using his guillotine cigarette, uh, his guillotine cigar yeah. cutter, and stabs himself. And eventually, actually, well, spoiler alert, kills all the murderers because he goes to blow up uh, Inspector Clouseau's mini, which I think it's also fitting that Mr. Bean drives a mini. Yeah. Uh, he goes to blow up Mr. Clu uh, Inspector Clouseau's mini and actually ends up taking up all of the murderers. Yeah. I mean, so I think, right, that, so I bring up Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis because that kind of, that, this type of humor, the kind of like falling and the, and, you know, getting hurt and those type of things was very popular in the 60s. Dare I say that was Jerry Lewis slightly better at it? I don't know. Jerry Lewis um, was a lot better at it, I, though. It's interesting, you know, as we're watching this film and doing research on it. Yeah. The way that in his time, Peter Sellers was seen as the contemporary to Chaplin. Back when Chaplin was the best of the silent film yeah. comedians. And they all, Chaplin, Keaton, and Harold Lloyd always kind of do this weird thing where every couple of decades, the, the top guy gets replaced. And I think Harold Lloyd is about to launch from third place to first place. Uh, you know, for the longest time, it was Chaplin. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, Lloyd and then Keaton and then Keaton kind of rose the ranks. And by the time I was in graduate school and studying silent film, Keaton was seen as the greatest silent yeah. film comic. And there's a very active Buster Keaton society yeah. that promotes him. But, you know... Harold Lloyd is starting, I yeah. think, to get some attention again, which is interesting. But he, but Peter Sellers was seen as the Chaplin of his era, yeah, and maybe a comedic genius only second to Chaplin. And that's not to say that I don't think Peter Sellers is a is a comedic genius, right? Like I think he can be such an amazing actor. Like in Lolita, yes. he's amazing in Lolita. And even the party's interesting, right? Like that's like an interesting film. For me, yeah. I think this kind of, uh, 
I, it, this is definitely a film of its era, but like the literally uh, a chambermaid, um, a dead man is found in her her bedroom. So Marie, Maria, uh, there's a dead man in the bedroom, and Peter Sellers Clouseau shows up to investigate. And honestly, he automatically thinks she's innocent because she's hot. Yes. And that's it. And that's like the whole premise of this film is that she's too sexy to be a killer. Yes. And and so he goes around, uh, you know, out of his way to try to prove that she's innocent because he is attracted to her. Very attracted um, to Even her. to the tune of releasing her from jail multiple times because... Even as more people are dying As more people her. are dying. And so literally that's the premise of the film. And so... Other people are dying, but you actually don't get a good job. So, like, if it was an Alfred Hitchcock, the kind of search for the killer would have been a bit more interesting. And so the search for the killer, like, for me, the search for the killer is, like, maybe the fourth interest of this film. Yes. Um, and so it's really about, like, the attractive chambermaid, Maria, and how cute she is, and Clouseau trying to you know, have a relationship with her. Uh, and then, of course, all the jokes and him being bumbling is like, a neck, you know, the other big thing and his pratfalls. Oh, and then maybe we'll get around to the solving the crime at some point. In time. Yes. And so I get it, like you get it, but it's kind of like, you know, for me, the ending was just like, eh, they just kind of throw it together. Yeah. So I, it's definitely a thing. There is the ballroom scene, the sort of classic ballroom scene. Yes, that's true. I mean, if you saw Clue, I, I mean, Clue definitely borrowed a lot of that ballroom scene from 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 the shot in the dark, right? Well, from shot in the dark, from also, in a way, if you all the way go back to, like, Ibsen, mm. there, every Ibsen, quote, well-made play has a ballroom scene. Gotcha. Where every main character every relevant character is for some reason yeah it's thanksgiving and they're all in the same space yeah. together well and that's whatever. also an agatha christie uh, too right that like is an agatha christie everybody... so that goes back to sort of 19th century theater yeah. that kind of sticks with us and becomes a very good trope for the big confrontation at the end when the inspector knows who the killer is or in this case is trying to figure out who the killer is I, through was... this big reveal yeah, I also wish there was because there are like seller movies that are much smarter about class, yes. right? And so it, it is a, a wealthy the murder happens at a wealthy, a very wealthy, influential man's home, um, and so the joke is that they that uh, forces push for Clouseau to be the inspector because everyone knows he's gonna mess it up. Mess it up, yeah, yeah. And so, and you know, the the commissioner, um, Dreyfus, who you mentioned, is actually more bumbling. You know, caves to pressure, puts Clouseau on it, but doesn't. Is just like then terrified of Clouseau messing. And he's having about. a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Which you know, mental illness is funny. I think the other thing about this is too the stereotype about the French, or the two stereotypes about the French. Yeah. Oversexed and bumbling. Yes. Yes. Oversexed and clumsy, snooty and, uh, yeah, just inept and incapable of basic human adulting. Yeah. And I, I think that's also fascinating and fascinatingly dated. 
I agree with you. It's like, honestly, like, you think there was a time coming out of the 19th century, really the American Revolution and into the 19th century, where there was Americans who were Anglophiles and Americans, excuse me, who were Francophiles. And, you know, what do we want to be like? Do we want to be like the British, who was the nation who birthed us? Do we want to be like the French? They were around, too, and, you know, they helped us out. Liberty, equality, fraternity, all that. They even had their own <laughs> democratic revolution. And so there was a time, and, you know, Julie Child comes into this, too, uh, you know, worth French and French cooking and French things and French art and yeah, we don't care. I think enough about the French anymore to even make, even for them to even warrant stereotypes <laughs> anymore. Like there's just profound indifference about the French. Yeah, and that's another way that this film really belongs to a world that no longer exists. Yeah. And I think, again, that we, being the generation that has sort of bridged the gap between those worlds, um, I don't know how younger people would see this movie. Yeah. Or would have any interest in seeing this movie. No, no. And I think, like, comedy is so much different now. Yes. Films are so much different. Like, you know, I was thinking about, like, Zoolander, for example. um, And just Which there are elements of. Yeah. But I think about like the pacing and the humor, yes. and it it it's just like much different for Zoolander. Like Zoolander was is fun, is a fun popcorn movie, right? It's just like fun to sit and watch that film. This one I was actually kind of bored and got disinterested yeah. in it with it. And the funny thing is, like, so I when when the screenwriter came up, I was like, that's the dude from The Exorcist. Um, so William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, was one of the screenwriters on this film, which is like so weird to me. That's um, a very interesting combination. It is a very interesting combination. And then Blake Edwards, um, who was married to Julie Andrews, uh, but he did Breakfast at Tiffany's, and so. You know, he was very, like, I remember growing up because I was really watched uh, into, like, TMC and Turner Movie Classic and AMC. Um, So, you know, he came, his stuff was out all the time because he did Breakfast at Tiffany's and Day of Wine and Roses, um, The Great Race, The Party, and he, Victor Victoria with his wife and SOB. And so he did a lot of these kind of very famous films. Uh, but uh, most of his career, a good chunk of his career, was doing these Pink Panther films. Yes. And there ended up being like 10 in total because there was like a reboot. I forgot there was a reboot with Steve Martin at one point. There was a time. reboot with Steve Martin. There was also, after Peter Sellers died, a clip movie of like unrele- of all the unused yeah. footage that they just kind of randomly tried to splice together, which came out in 1982, which explains why I was probably watching this movie when I was five. Yeah, that's true. If there was a new Pink Panther movie, quote-unquote. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, oh my gosh, they had uh, What's-His-Face, who did, um, he was a French uh, uh, comedic actor who had a, a little bit of a career for a period of time. And his name, of course, just went out of my head. Jacques Tati? No, no, no. He, um... Uh, Robert, Roberto Bignini. Or he's Italian. 
Um, he he did it as well. He did Son of the Pink Panther. Mm. Um, I don't know, it was Blake Edwards who still did that, so that was pretty late in his career that he did that. Mm. So, I mean, this was, like, there's a ton of these. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think some failed at the box office, but in total, I think it was a very successful franchise. I think it made almost $500 million with it. Yes. Um, but I do think it's, I think it's more of, people wanting to see the jokes and seeing him yeah and yeah. well it is a comedy and i mean it does say in the laser disc sleeve that this was one of the funniest of the pink um, panther um, movies uh, so i wonder it does make me wonder what a bad pink panther movie would look like <laughs> would look like in 2023 um yeah i've kind of kicked this around a bit <laughs> i think the other thing is this this i We've talked about this for 20 minutes. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else to talk about in this film. So should we get to the five big questions? I think so. Well, first one, and I think we've already reached this answer, is a camp retro classic or just an old movie? I think it's just an old movie. Yeah. To be honest with you. It's it's of its time. Um, I'd rather watch Dr. Strangelove or Lolita if yeah. I'm feeling out, or even The Party. Um, or feeling. Being There. I think oh, we should being watch there. being there at some yeah. point. We do own that on an obsolete format. I forget which one, but we do own it. We should watch that at some point. Which also, I, I, I think we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I do want to get into it a little bit. Question to the social political distance. Um, mental health is funny. Yeah. Ethnic people are funny. Yes. And women don't have agency. Exactly. Three pillars of this film. There is no plot without the fact that, you know, the one person who was killed was a Spaniard and he was super passionate and he ripped the chambermaid's clothes off and and she was quite enjoying that. Yeah. But he was, because he was a Spaniard, it it makes sense that he would be that heated heated and incapable of controlling his passions. Yes. Uh, Again, Cato... As the Asian stereotype, he's he's the manservant, but he's also so he's so, in a subjective role, and also then he's kung fu, and he knows he kung doesn't fu. speak either. No, he does. Oh, he answers does he? the phone. Oh, that's right. I forgot. He, he says he phone. can stop. Clouseau residence, and then that's it. And then once the fight is over, then Inspector Clouseau gives him a smackdown because once he stops fighting, then he can be beaten. Um... Yeah, and of course, like I said, the the whole thing about the French. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the the weird, definitely a weirdness around it. Yeah, um, and I, I agree with you a hundred percent with the women and agency, and then also, um, so it, you know, the the murder all happens related to a bunch of different people sleeping with each other. So even like the sexual politics are kind of weird yeah. in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the technical distance, especially the effects? I think you mentioned it a couple times. I think the pacing of the film. Yeah. Is, is, is what weird. is really what dates it in terms of like the mechanics of movie making. Yeah. There really are no special effects. I mean, there's stunts. There are practical stunts. Yeah. How many times does Peter Sellers fall out of a second story window? Yeah. Or fall into the water fountain at the estate? Yeah. 
a lot. Yeah. He does that a lot. And so they're all practical effects and very physical humor. Yeah. So that stays. But yeah, I think the pacing is what's... And I love, you know, there's a bunch of great French, old, weird French cars. I was just going to say that the, you know, the car casting for it is pretty... The car casting, casting is, pretty is pretty epic. Pretty, uh, there's pretty Renaults cool. and, and, and the Citroëns and the police van is a Citroën, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think the car casting is, is fantastic. Yeah, watch it for the cars. Um, there's no car chases. But. And there is also this, like, silly gag. They, I think they only do it twice where... He's trying to trail Maria as she's leaving. And so the first time he's a balloon seller, but gets busted. The second time he's a painter, painter. he gets busted, yeah. Yeah, and so... And then he gets busted a few other times. Yeah. Um, So there's, like, these kind of weird things of, like, this, like, gag that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Yeah. And then also there's the... That acts as a refrain. Yeah. Which is also weird. The undercover cop gets arrested and can't produce a badge or an id but and of course it feels like in the it feels like every like 60s sitcom uh comedy had to have a nudist colony scene yes um and so there is that he ends up at a nudist colony um but he does a pretty good job of covering himself yes um but yeah so there's just these kind of um we keep saying it like the pacing's weird and of its time kind of Mm. kind of jokes yeah and so even him, like, between these kind of things that are happening, even, like, his reasoning isn't necessarily there of why yes. why he so believes in her or he... Mm-hmm. I know it's a part of the joke that he's bumbling, um, but there's not even, like, these really interesting mm. kind of him putting mm. things together kind of moments. Interesting. Yeah. So the new question for what does it mean to watch it on this format? What does it mean to watch <laughs> Pink Panther Laserdisc? Other than the fact that we tried for 40 minutes to make Grease Laserdisc work. Um, apparently sometimes Laserdiscs start to separate. Oh, interesting. And so actually when they start to separate, they become unreadable. Oh. And so we were trying to get... And also... It, there's a it would have been dropped or something this this grease mm. so so we we actually put shot in the dark in to just test to see if it was the player or the yeah. disc and the the disc booted right up and so yeah. uh yeah so there's always this like nostalgia so when the united artists came up the UA. yes um, and so for me as a kid, I always felt like United United Artists was prestige films. Yes. Um, so hearing that music and seeing that logo, I was like, yes. oh, like in my mind, I was like, oh, United Artists, and it has to be something, you know, it's prestigious. Yes. Meanwhile, it's a shot in the dark. Um, yes. And also, when was the last time you saw a movie on any home video format that had a cigarette burn in it? Oh, yeah. That is true. That and is not true. a cigarette burn is in somebody... You know, burned it with a cigarette, but it, the the sign that it was time to switch reels in the theater. Yeah, I did notice that at least once. Actually, at the end of side A of the laser disc, I was like, "Oh, that's a cigarette burn!" I remember when those were in movies all the time <laughs> when you watch them in theaters and on TV and on VHS and yeah. apparently on laser discs. And so, with a laser disc, you do have to flip it. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, like a VHS and DVD, you don't, but for laser... Or streaming, for that matter. streaming. So, that's also a thing, like, it's like, if you do get into a film, you do have to stop, get up, flip it over, and then, you know, so that kind of... And hopefully that the second side reads. It reads, and it... <laughs> and sometimes they're not always great about when to cut the This action. one worked really well. Yeah. This one worked at a jump cut. Um... I mean, the fidelity is not great. I mean, again, we're laser disc to a now 15-year-old 1080p flat-screen TV. I mean, I can only imagine how it would look if we had a brand-new TV. Yeah, if we had a brand-new TV, I bet if we had an old cathode ray, our old living room TV that died 15 years ago, yeah, um, it would probably look pretty good. Yeah. But, you know, this is a grainy print that they made this laser disc off of as well. So this is, like, pretty far from 4K restoration. Yeah. And you... Uh, the funny thing is, over time, you kind of stop noticing the graininess. Yes, you, like you, you sort of stop noticing. To, the night to... scene was very odd. Yeah. You know, they used diffusion. Or... I don't think they used diffusion, actually. I think they, they just used very low lighting. And, you, again, you're supposed to be sort of maybe drawn in. But these people moving across this grand house. And then there's gunfire. And, yeah. You know, um, but then again, also, is this a film that would ever get a 1080p restoration? Right. And so it, it also is a question of becoming, if you don't collect these sorts of things. Yeah. At what point do you maybe lose the ability to see them? Right. You know, not that this is a particularly important film, but it's a film human beings made well, and it's, it, it, and attention must be paid, like Willie Loman. I mean, there's a thing of like, no, right, attention should be paid. Um, so I do think they're not that we're hoarders because that's what it's going to come off as is being hoarders but I do think there is a value into having access to what people have made in the past absolutely absolutely as you know every school uh, university I've been affiliated with is just purging library books left and right and granted young people are not at all interested in reading paper yeah um, but that's a lot of knowledge that's going out the door. Yeah. And I think there's also ways in which... I think part of why we do this podcast, too, is that, you know, streaming does have the illusion of infinite choice. Right. But actually, things things come and go. As we all learned with the U2 and the situation where... They Apple could just put something on your phone for you. They could also just take it off, and like with the George Orwell book. Or yeah, um, I also tell this story, and I probably have told this story on this podcast before. Uh, I had set up my teaching and film course, and I had found a bunch of stuff that was on Hulu and Netflix, and I it was a spring class, and so in December I thought I'd be savvy, and maybe even before it might have even been before Christmas or before New Year's. Uh, I got my. I was between Christmas and New Year's. I was. I got my syllabus together, looking at things that were on these readily available streaming services that my students wouldn't have to pay to see these movies. They could borrow a password if they didn't already have one. And uh, January first, eight of the ten films that I had chosen on those two formats went off of streaming. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or at least free streaming. Students were still able to find ways to see them. Yeah. But. For a couple people, the easiest way was to go to the library where they had a DVD 
and then sit at a library computer that still had a disk drive because their laptops did not. Yeah. And that was the easiest way to see some of those films for that course. Yeah. Which this, yeah. people told me they just sort of built it into their weekend. <laughs> but again, it's if things go away and eventually, you know, it's these some of these servers, it's just not going to be profitable to keep them turned on. And so things things yeah. will sort of disappear, and things will disappear from public memory. Well, also we we also don't talk a lot about digital decay, right? So there yes. will be a part in time where it's just there's just not going to be enough space to hold. Yeah, those um, legacy box commercials yeah. really offend me because they're like, get rid of these physical things. You'll yeah. have safe digital media the last maybe five to six years but right. actually if you keep those photographs and keep those vhs tapes and keep those film strips in a cool dry place yeah the um they might be around 100 years from now whereas the thing that you pay for you you know there will at some point be a windows or mac OS os upgrade that you will not be able to get to them anymore. Exactly, exactly. And also, I think about silent films, too, where a yeah. lot of films... I mean, the... You 75%. Know, 75%. I mean, there's the famous scene in Gone with the Wind, the fire was set using old film. Old nitrite film, yeah. And so there's so much film that was lost and so many things that we can't yeah, see. Yeah, so it is important to hold yeah. on to things, even if they're not necessarily good things. Right. You know... Which, I guess that's the fifth question. Will we ever actually watch this Laserdisc again? That might start separating. We'll be unplayable at some point as well. Or, you know, I keep thinking about that we need to start stockpiling more machines. So, I know, right. So, I could see me saying I want to see the first one again, Pink Panther. Um, so, yeah. I, I could see saying, like, oh, we should watch Pink Panther, the first one. Um, I don't think I'd want to see a shot in the dark again, to be honest with you. I think the only circumstance I, which I would would be in another 40 years, and I'm, I'm suffering from a precipitous cognitive decline. <laughs> and that kind of humor and that kind of pacing is something I can handle. Yeah. I think that could happen. Yeah. But those are the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd rather... I'd rather watch Buster Keaton for this type of stuff. Absolutely. I'd rather watch Buster Keaton, Jackass, Harold Lloyd, Charles Chaplin. Right. I'd rather watch them. uh, Because, like, also, oddly, for Buster Keaton, I I feel like his pacing is much better, too. Yes. And he actually, the coherence in the story is much better. For some of them. For some some of them. A, A film like The General, where there was money involved, but a lot of the Buster Keaton... Yeah. Independent films, which is the ones he's remembered for. Uh, there was no plot. There was no storyboard even. There was no script and no storyboard. And sometimes he would, you know, I'm putting scare quotes here, write the film scene to scene. Yeah. And instead of shooting, you know, you got, you know, four scenes downtown, three scenes at the house, and one scene on a boat. They'd start at the house, go downtown, go to the boat, and say, you know what? I think I know what should have happened downtown. Let's go back to downtown and shoot that sequence. And then let's go back to the boat. And then let's go back to the house. (laughs) And so when his ex-brother-in-law sold his contract to MGM, and they were like, what? What do you mean you don't have a shooting script? What do you mean there's not a schedule for things? 
Um, so a lot of his films do kind of go off the rails because yeah. he would keep thinking of funny our hospitality in the bit with the train. Yeah, he would keep thinking of ways of making a joke in the train. Oh, this is another funny thing we can make a train do. And here's another. You know what else would be funny with this train if the wheels fall off? Which not if you're in East Palestine, Ohio, <laughs> but. Um, and so the film kind of like breaks down in terms of plot and pacing and all of it. Yeah. You know, and then there's a gag, you know, the dog is following the train and then he gets to the, and all the times the train breaks and he never notices that the dog's hanging around and then he gets there and you're like, what's my dog doing here? Like all of those things. So he does that too. He does sacrifice plot. Yeah. Coherence and pacing for jet for jokes. Which is also maybe a thing, you know, I guess you look at, like, some of the Will Ferrell, John C. Riley improv comedies. I mean, basically, movies like Semi-Pro and uh, Step Brothers and Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights. Talladega um, Nights. A lot of those were improv and yeah. sort of was the editor's job, but you had an editor who had a really strong sense of this is how the best joke from Semi-Pro is a line Amy Sedaris says that's not even in the film. That scene isn't even in the film. Yeah. Because though it's the best joke... They can't put that extra 90 seconds in the film yeah. to set up that joke. Whereas a film like this that's got an hour, a runtime of an hour and 10 minutes. It was two hours and 10 minutes, was it? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was 10 minutes short. It was 110 minutes. Sorry. Yeah. An hour is 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 110 minute runtime. So just shy of two hours. I think for the sake of all of the times that he needs to fall out that window. Yeah. Which... You know, so if you want a broad comedy, go see, go see Talladega Nights. That's really fun. Or go see Zoolander. This, if you want a Peter Sellers film, there's a ton of better Peter Seller films. Yeah. So I don't think I would watch this again. And if you want really strong physical comedy. Yeah. Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, and Charlie Chaplin. And Jackass. And Jackass. Yeah. Those are all much, much better films to go <laughs> to <Yes>. go see. <laughs> so I think that's about it. I think that's about it. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye.